Welcome to First Formation, a weekday podcast for high church lowlifes like me, Logan Isaac, looking to get the fuck up and pray. This is where Pew Pew HQ shares morning prayers for the humble, hearty folk caught in the crosshairs of God and country. A podcast for anyone who cares for soldiers and veterans enough to follow us into the mud and the suck, to hear the good news through grunts and with grunts in the unity of the Holy Spirit as one church forever and ever. Fall in. Psalm 32 Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all of you who are upright in heart. Joshua chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of Israelites to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do those stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took the twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites as the Lord had told Joshua, and he carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the twelve stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Now the priests who carried the Ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed Joshua. The people hurried over, and as soon as as all of them had crossed, The ark of the Lord and the priests came to the other side while the people watched. The men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over, ready for battle, in front of the Israelites, as Moses had directed them. About 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Jordan to the plains of Jericho for war. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 
through chapter 5, verse 5. Therefore we do not lose heart. Although outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. This morning's reading from Joshua uh, describes the end of the wandering time in the wilderness for the 40 years with Moses. And Joshua has now taken command of the tribes of Israel as they cross over the Jordan to be uh, to begin uh, uh, taking the land that God has promised them. And they create a memorial. Uh, in fact, they, they take stones from the River Jordan right from where the priests and the Ark of the Covenant stood, um, and they build up this uh, standing memorial, which is uh, stacking stones one on top of the other. Um, and that's supposed to be a marker that will symbolize um, the the memory, or really formalize the memory in symbolism and that being that where uh, the the memorial is set up um, it is supposed to serve as a direct and material reminder um, that God is capable of stopping the entire river um, the river Jordan um, in fact they're set, uh, they're told that your children will ask you um, and you're supposed to tell them what happened. Um, and the difficulty with this text, if you take a step outside the Bible um, and outside the perspective of the Israelites, some scholars, both Christian and Jewish and, and non-religious, have remarked that if it's true that uh, the Israelites did the things that are described in Joshua, many of which are seem very objectionable to modern hearers. And that includes killing all the women and children, sometimes even the livestock and anything that breathes. Sometimes that even includes burning down uh, the flora, the, the vegetation. Um, and what is described, and because these tribes that they'll encounter are entire people groups, uh, the Hittites and the, you know, the Jebusites and fill in the blank, um, what's it could be um, interpreted as a genocidal campaign to take land that, uh, at, at least as far as their earthly counterparts were concerned, uh, they weren't, they, they'd never, you know, offered. This is something that um, 
looks incredibly morally dubious. And within the tradition, the focus is on God and, and obeying God and God fulfilling his promise to give them a land, a good land flowing with milk and honey. In the last reading yesterday and the day before, we confirmed that it is. There's grapes and there's figs and pomegranates. <coughs> and um, that memorial, at least by the time these books were compiled and, and set into a canon, into a, a formal list of holy scriptures for uh, the Jews of that time, which would have been several hundred years before the Common Era, um, initially in Greek, the Septuagint, and then uh, later in Hebrew. Um, at least at the time when this was um, compiled and, and brought into the canon, it says that that memorial was still there. Um, and it makes me think, and in part because I, uh, I spent a lot of time in North Carolina, it's where I met my wife, and we were there uh, again recently this past weekend. And in North Carolina, there's memorials that have been interpreted um, in uh, conflicting ways, much like that memorial at the side of the River Jordan would have been to people who are grafted into the vine of the story of the Israelites and the God of Israel. Um, that that memorial, that stack of twelve stones, symbolizes God's providing and God's um, fulfilling God's promise. But for those who do not um, see that uh, in the same way, who aren't grafted onto this story, um, and if we listen to this story in the historical context of the time, that memorial could very well and legitimately represent a genocidal campaign by some whack jobs who justified it on the idea that their one God was better than the many gods. Um, and in North Carolina, those memorials uh, that have captured national attention, one in Durham, right in front of the courthouse, and one in Chapel Hill, which is right next to uh, the church where my wife used to work. One was, and that was Silent Sam. The other one in Durham didn't have a name. But one thing that made each of those, that each of those memorials had in common was that they were a statue of, of a, a nameless representative of the Confederate States of America, a, a soldier of the Confederate States of America. And some people uh, interpret that legitimately as a symbol of racism, as a symbol of oppression, um, uh, white supremacy and violence. And that is a legitimate and fair interpretation. But that's not the only legitimate interpretation of those memorials. Um, some people interpret those memorials very simply as a memorial to the war dead of that area uh, during a time when that area uh, considered itself apart from the United States of America. Um, and one, one really difficult but very simple way to put it is it's, it's a memorial to veterans of a war that in North Carolina um, engaged in uh, against the United States of America. So we're in this weird place of these memorials being somewhat simple, but also quite complicated. Um, ultimately, they both were brought down. Um, the public debate was um, tragically lacking. Um, 
because people had these interpretations, these legitimate interpretations of what those symbols meant. Um, And people could not come to terms with the duplicity, and I mean that both in good and in bad ways, um, the, the plurality of meaning that those memorials held. Um, that isn't to say that one side is right or the other wrong, but that there was a failure to reconcile a complicated reality, which I think is at the heart of what Pew Pew HQ is doing. Christian soldiers, um, people think that soldiering uh, has most everything, if not everything, to do with violence in war. And I, as a former grunt, or a gr- I don't you know whether or not I'm a former or not, um, someone who's been on the front lines of war, um, who has served in the military for several years and who has theological training, I don't think that it's that simple. I don't think that it's as simple as there's one interpretation that is right or more right, um, but that there's significant areas of gray where two things could be true at the same time. Uh, that there is violence in war, and yet it's more complicated than that. Um, and the danger that I see is in the inability or the refusal to recognize um, those shades of gray, to insist at any time that one is good and the other evil, or one is right and the other wrong, the times at which that will be true. And I think there are things that are objectively and morally wrong. Um, I just don't think that we're talking about the things that will help us understand how complicated this issue really is. I don't think that we're keeping in mind the people who, for reasons that are many, um, whether that's social or economic issues, um, haven't had their voice heard who haven't felt as though their voice has value and their contributions have value. Um, And another um, force or movement also feels similarly. And I think that one thing that this story can do is to remind us that we know that we can and we have seen stories, we've privileged our own story often Um, and we also have forgotten that placing such importance on our own story has sometimes come at the expense of being able to recognize the story and the worth and the value and the dignity of the story of, of others who we don't agree with, or quite frankly, we don't like, but that memorial either in Joshua or in North Carolina only has the meaning that we give it. Um, And the problem with that is that so often what we mean by we isn't clear. What we mean by we is often taken for granted. And I'm not sure that it's necessary that someone always has to be forgotten. Someone always has to be on a rung below you in order for... Um, in order for us to reach some kind of mutuality or understanding or, um, or compromise.
Prayer for the Poor and Neglected from the Book of Common Prayer Almighty and merciful God, we remember before you all poor and neglected persons whom it would be easy for us to forget, the homeless and the destitute, the old and the sick, and all who have none to care for them. Help us to heal those who are broken in body or spirit and to turn their sorrow into joy. Grant this, Father, for the love of your Son, who for our sake became poor, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for falling into Pew Pew HQ's First Formation, where we share morning prayers for the humble, hardy folk caught in the crosshairs of God and country. If you like what you've heard, I hope you'll consider participating in one of the three following ways. First, you can support this podcast with a monthly contribution at anchor.fm slash firstformation. You can sponsor morning prayer for Pew Pew people with as little as a dollar a month, and you can cancel at any time if I ever piss you off. Second, you can become a co-host yourself by recording a lectionary reading and sending it to me to be included in a weekday episode of your choosing. Instructions for co-hosts can be found in earlier episodes, and you don't have to be a grunt to participate in First Formation in this or any way. Finally, and maybe most importantly, you can send me your prayer requests of a minute or less with a voice message feature on Anchor's iOS or Android apps. Prayers may be added to a morning prayer episode, aired anonymously if you wish, or kept private for me to pray for off-air. So there you have it. Three ways to participate in morning prayers for Pew Pew people. I hope you will continue to listen in and maybe even consider participating yourself. This has been and always will be Logan Isaac. Always faithful, always family. Semper Familia.